it's funny. I never wanted to be that superstar. I didn't even want to be a star. I just wanted to write songs. And uh, I didn't want to be that guy that had to worry when he went out to eat lunch, you know, if he, yeah. he, he needed that piece. But, you know, fast forward a few years later, and then I ended up recording. I, I've never chased the radio, but that's it's being a writer of some big hits. I've been able to develop that fan base and I get to tour and do shows as many as I want to every year. And that has been the just one of the biggest gifts for me to get out of the writer room at this point and take a mm -hmm. break and mm -hmm. get out the songs and look the people in the eye and see their reaction and getting to talk to them. excited today to have joining me a friend of mine who we met, um, goodness gracious, somewhere in the late teens of the 2000s. And we met doing an independent film, A Love Project, uh, with Bobby Toberlin, who I'm looking forward to interviewing, who is a nominee of the uh, CMAs, the ACMs, the Grammys, and is based out of Nashville, originally from Alabama, and has been a staff writer on um, Curb Music uh, for the last 25 years. And Bobby is this extraordinary human being who has a, a beautiful way of connecting with people. And what I think is the truth to his success and uh, just whomever interacts with him has just great uh, love for him. And the reason why I wanted to sit down with Bobby is to hear, you know, how Bobby um, had the confidence and the belief to become who he's become, uh, starting as a little boy out of Alabama. So I look forward to you sitting down around the campfire. I look forward to you joining me and listening in on this conversation. And I cannot wait for you to hear what Bobby's going to say. Here we go. Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am good. How are you doing? I'm good, handsome. I'd Nashville it all up today for you. Man, you are Really handsome. did. I'm like, I'm Look not going to put a ball cap on and, and all of that. No, 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 no. The Nashville. Wait, it's been too long. You're representing beautifully. Pardon? It's been too long. Gosh. It's been way too long. I mean, honestly, as I was doing an intro pre-recording, I was like, what year was it? I, I really, what year was it that we worked together? Oh, God. I think it was like 2015, 16, something now, like that. The premiere was 17. So, so yeah, we've been 15. Well, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, 15. Yeah, Unbelievable. That's right. It was two when it was, you know, until it was released. Right, exactly. Yeah, great. So are you sitting in your office right now? Yeah, a little music room. 
is the music room part of where you work downtown in Nashville no, or part no, of your no. property? Part of my place, yeah. There's so cool did history. You have, did you, I'm sorry, did you have this space when we were working together? Is this where you've worked out of before? No. No, it wasn't. I've been here, though. It was right after that time. But there's a great songwriter. His name is Bill LaBounty, and this used to be his studio room. And people like Neil Diamond and Waylon Jennings and so many different ones came here to write. So that energy is kind of in the air here. Oh, well, here, here's the deal. We're going to get started because that prelude to all of this, what I want to talk to you about is amazing. So I want to say thank you so much for joining me around the campfire so we could talk and connect because it's been way too long, Bobby. And Bobby, you and I met doing this passion project called Wheeler with Stephen Dorf, your friend, my now friend since doing that project. And what a sweet passion project that was. I mean, I didn't want it to end. And we just were like, you know, at the seat of our pants doing things that I hadn't done since like the beginning of my career and wanted more. And it was really like, it lit me up. And what I, what I loved about meeting you, Bobby, was that you were just this authentically genuine, heartfelt human being who had all the success, but this humility that you would never know was what and who you really were and how you showed up. And that's what I think is so important about why I created this platform. I can't beat the uncensored platform and why I'm so thankful you joined me because I think connection and conversations are like the most, the richest thing we have. And you being a songwriter and and taking words to music and emoting those those messages, those feelings, I think would resonate with you, right? And what I loved and felt so connected to you, uh, even organically, and maybe you don't even realize to the level, but I was completely gobsmacked by how you made people feel when in their presence and then also what you have been entrusted to do all these years so i want to go back to little bobby in alabama and ask what were you you know what was your life like you know under the age of what the the, the earliest memories you have and who and what was inspiring you and what were you looking at and what were you listening to and how did this career then you know come to be out of that but let's start with who you were as a little boy well before i answer i want to quickly say thank you so much what a compliment so uh, many compliments there so thank you so much for all the kind words and it was such a pleasure to work on that film because that film you know I was able to, to put so much of my heart into it. Like, you know, it was like before I even came to Nashville, it was, it was that kind of passion, you know, little Bobby. <laughs> God, that's been a long time since that's been said, uh, you know, I was so blessed to be, uh, you know, brought into this beautiful family, this mother and father who wanted a child, but uh, they wanted to adopt. Mm -hmm. and I was adopted at three months old and uh, 
it was said so funny when my adopted parents picked me up the foster parent in montgomery alabama told them the only time that i cry is when the radio is turned off oh wow so it's like that passion that love for the music i mean it was there from the very beginning oh and, wow and you know my earliest memory now this is really going to sound country but it's no, true speak speak your heart was, uh, my first memory is singing a hank williams song on a tree stop that was my stage and i was probably three and a half years old but i remember it just like it was yesterday yeah and, and, you know, wasn't, uh, I, I, you know, I wasn't adopted into really a musical family. However, I had an uncle who really was a good musician who, um, you know, played a lot of instruments. I didn't see him often enough, but when he did come around, he just inspired me. And then I had another uncle, the sweet man who passed away last year. Yeah. Uh, his name was Robert. And he had a big record collection and he knew, you know, he played guitar and he showed me the chords. And he would show me like three chords a week. And then I would go back to my home and send set all week, you know, and just practice on those, you know, with those chords. And I remember the first time I could play a song all the way through. I was so excited. I remember running into the house. Oh, I'm, and it was an old blues song called My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. My Bucket's Got a Hole in It? Yeah. Like, oh, my bucket's got a hole in it. Yeah, my bucket's got a hole in it. Oh, my bucket's got a hole in it. I came behind no beer. Can you believe that? Like a five. I can't believe it. We had a camp song called There's a Hole in the Bucket, Dear Liza, Dear Liza. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was an old blues song. And Hank, you know, mentioning Hank Williams again, he recorded it. So maybe I heard it from a recording of Hank's. But I just sat there and, man, I thought I... I thought I was brilliant. I thought I had really tapped into something no one ever had at such a young age. But that and you were three no, and a half at that time, or no, at that time, at that time probably, what part five and a half, six years old by that time. But you know, my parents had a great uh, record collection, and it was a variety. Thank goodness, you know, it was everything from Beatles to Nat King Cole to The Doors to Hank Williams to Merle Haggard to Glenn Campbell, Wichita Lineman. So, oh, and then Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and, you know, Diana Ross. So I was introduced, to, uh, you know, just the greatest music all over the map. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, when I sing, it's definitely more of a country vocal, but, but I was inspired by so, you know, many styles of music. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I think unconsciously, I mean, I would not have known that unless we started having this conversation right here, right now. But as you say that, you are talking about my childhood. I can literally see these beautiful plexiglass kind of record holders that my parents had all that variety. And we would then in turn go to live uh, concerts, sometimes in the round, just with the Harry Belafonte or the Liza Minnelli or the, the, uh, geez, the, uh, I mean, there's so many bands from musical theater, Broadway to one-on-one -on -one performers that again, but it was the records that we just endless amounts of variety that made for that rich background. So continue as you had this exposure to these family members who you said weren't a musical family, but yet, guided you 
yeah, in this they- way, consciously or unconsciously. But I'm sure there was, you know, motivation in recognizing your passion or what stimulated you. So by five and a half, six, you have these memories. And that and then what what was happening from from there? Well, I started a, a make-believe radio station in my bedroom. And I literally, and I'm not talking about once every couple of weeks going in and playing radio. I literally had a radio shift every afternoon after school. I do the weather forecast. I would record commercials off the radio and I would pretend like, okay, now we're going to break for these commercials and we'll be back in just a few minutes with more music on WLVN Louvre Alabama. And I would like, I'd had a stack of records and I remember, you know, oh, it's the country hour. Then I would do a pop hour. I was playing all kinds of music. And then I would do, I remember the radio station, you know, it was kind of block programming, this little AM station where they would play gospel, R&B. They called it midday melodies, you know, artists like Andy Williams and Frank Sinatra. And and so I, I had those records anyway. So I just sat there and I had my own little radio station with block programming. And uh, so I did that for a few years. And then I ended up being a disc jockey in my hometown, at my hometown radio station. I was 11 years old when I started. And uh, I'll never forget one Saturday morning, my dad and I were in my little hometown at a store. I don't know if you remember these stores. They were called Western Auto stores. Oh, Uh, I don't think we had those up in the Midwest, but maybe. I mean, yeah. what would it be the equivalent of, like a pharmacy or Western, like where they would sell Western? Oh, no, they what- sold, they, they were like uh, before Walmart came along, except they were small inside. But you like would a five and dime. Kind uh, of. Yeah, a little. Yeah, but they would have like TVs. They would have lawnmowers and then they would have a big record rack right as you entered the store. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There was some there were definitely some private owned stores of that like that had that. They were pre the Best Buys and pre the everything, but they were the range of everything we could get all the things under one roof. Absolutely. So on this one Saturday. One Saturday morning, my dad and I were in the store and there was the owner of the radio station. And uh, my dad asked him, he was like, uh, could Bobby come down to the radio station sometime and just kind of hang out and and just see how things work. He's just obsessed with radio. And Mr. Sport was his name. And he's just celebrated, I think, his 90th birthday. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he says, well, just come down this afternoon. My son Tom is going to be there. So my dad dropped me by for about an hour. And Tom let me queue up a record. Back then, we used the vinyl. And we would have to queue them up. And he let me do that and, and introduce a song. And I was hooked. And it you know, wasn't long. Till they brought me, you know, in at the radio station to do some filling work. And then I started doing the afternoon shift. And uh, that was such a great time. And, God, and it, it wasn't long until I found a Billboard magazine resource book. And in this book were phone numbers to mm. offices of people like Loretta Lynn, Tammy Wynette, all of those big stars. So I just started randomly making calls to these offices, asking for interviews. And I started doing an interview. I made it a goal to do an interview a day. And I, and I did. And I've got a lot of little cassette tapes of some of these interviews with people like the group Alabama and, 
And, you know, funny, a lot of the people now that I've worked with or shared the stage with, but I was, I mean, obsessed is a strong word, but I guess I kind of was, I knew that's what I was going to do. I knew I was going to skip college. Um, I knew the minute I graduated, I had to get to work on making my way to a music city. And this, you know, Nashville was the case. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. What a visionary. First off, I think, you know, as you and I both know, uh, success comes from lots of different things. It comes from, you know, having a vision or an idea, having belief, making that decision, committing, taking consistent action, showing up, bringing value, falling on your face, getting back up, having a series of events called life, called career, called personal, called all these things. And how dedicated are you going to be? And how persistent are you going to be? And how, how, um, how, you know, responsible are you going to be and who can depend upon you and even when there's not loyalty in the business there's got to be one of you or many of you uh, you know who people can turn to and fix things and who they can rely on and um you know all these things take a lot of character development and I don't know if you're born with it or if it's created over time or it's sculpted combined all these elements but clearly you had all the elements of the making of like just that story alone, seeing that movie from, you know, little Bobby being adopted. And the only time you didn't cry was when the radio, you know, or the only time you cried was when the radio wasn't playing Right. to then, you know, having these men in your life, extensions of your adopted family who recognize, uh, you know, and gave you that opportunity to learn that thing that made your heart sing or feel so, you know, calm, creating that little radio show. Then your father recognizing the opportunity. True. That is like stars align and had the love for you to want to make that happen for you. Not even knowing what that, what that question was going to do, but the importance of asking the questions, being being willing to just step into it and do it messy. Like he didn't know what the outcome was gonna be. He could have, this man, Mr. Storm could have been like, yes, sorry, lovely, lovely. Oh, nice to meet you, Right. you know, not happening. I know, I know. I mean, if he'd have just said no that day, I mean, who knows? Maybe, you know, I would have, after another three or four years of playing radio, you know, I would be older and definitely wouldn't be sitting in my room doing that. So who knows which path I would have gone down. But I also want to add to, to um, the story. Uh, one of the other big inspirations was Hank Williams Sr. He was born and raised about 30 miles from my hometown. So I was raised around a lot of his family and old band members and friends. So the very first week I worked in radio, Hank Williams' first cousin showed up, she and her husband, and brought me a milkshake. And they started coming to the radio station every week to visit me, and they would just hang out with me. And then they started inviting me to come to Montgomery and perform at some of these Hank Williams memorial events. And there, at 
you know, people in Hank Williams Jr.'s office. Um, and then that led to meeting some other people in the music business. So it, it you know, it's kind of crazy when you see how all of the stars lined up. I mean, I looked at Hank Williams like, oh, wow, he's he literally played in my hometown at, you know, right now there's like nine buildings in my hometown where he actually performed. So I grew up, you know, feeling like Nashville was like the land of Oz, a million miles away. But yeah. I would see places where Hank performed and, and, you know, they would say, oh, Hank played at this school. Now it's the community center where we're having our family reunion and the stage is still there. And I would see these things and I would think, wow, if he got away from here, maybe I could find my way to, to Nashville. And that's really, you know, clearly then he, they, all these people were a source of inspiration and in giving you, here's the next step. You, you know, you have the opportunity to take it. Here's the next door opening. Here's an opportunity to walk through it. And, and the simulation of the, you know, simpaticoness of all those people, all that energy, all that, you know, take this baby and <laughs> serve him his future. It almost <laughs> With love. I mean, the story was already there. It was like, here, you, you, you guys are the characters part of this movie, you know. That's hundred percent. I mean, honestly, I'd already be crying in this movie. This is we got to. This is a movie to be really brought to brought brought forth. Seriously, it's a beautiful story, Bobby. We haven't even gotten into the gut of my conversation, and that is a beautiful story. So you know, from there, you start performing on these stages, having this vision, having this realization of Hank Williams can do it, so can I. Wow, that's a huge light bulb moment. How old are you when you have that light bulb moment? Oh, probably 12, 13. You know, I think that, I'm sorry, go ahead. What were you gonna say? No, and I, I was gonna say the funny thing, the first concert that I ever went to was a Hank Williams concert of course the son of hank senior and the show was literally the stage set on the ground where hank senior's old home it had been torn down but the birthplace of hank senior so that was my first concert that's incredible so it's oh. like rooted in you from the ground up oh yeah and coming from down there you know you've got that blues influence mm-hmm Beautiful, you know, it, you know, it's been told many times in documentaries about Hank Williams, how he was listening to the Grand Ole Opry and singing those mountain songs of, you know, some of these older guys like Bill Monroe and Roy Acuff. But then he met this blues musician, street musician who taught him the blues. So the day they met, country music changed. You had that, you know, great, uh, you know, New Orleans and Mississippi blues influence mixed with hardcore country music and it it changed the world well and it's interesting that you mentioned the blues because then you also talk about going up to like places like Chicago and a combination of those mountain southern kind of storytelling from the blues and for me like Chicago blues like that was just like that and that and gospel, like I, nobody was, you know, playing that in my, I mean, consciously in my household, even though it was in my household because of other artists and what they were performing. But to know and understand the root of that and why I love that so much. I mean, 
um, you know, and, and, and the South where, where you're referring to where it camp comes from, it's just like, you understand why when you spend time down there, like I climbed the Appalachians when I was 14 years old and you, you know, when you travel land, just, you know, I think a lot of that storytelling comes from, well, we both know this from life experience and uh, that's from a lot of pain, come a lot of pain, a lot of pain, a lot of hard work, mm -hmm. you know, People working out in the fields, people, Hank Williams, shining shoes as a kid, selling peanuts just so they could get a, you know, a meal. I mean, they, they really lived, you know, it was hard. Hard. And those were the stories that were being turned into music that was the trajectory of their life, many musicians' lives, does not mean a successful path, but means a path of expression, a path of you know, I've got to get this out of me. And, you know, whether it's just on somebody's front porch or back, right. you know, under a tree, or it's on the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, yes. what, you know, who's to say? And most of the people, you know, that came along at that time that appeared on the Opry or ended up being Grand Ole Opry members, that wasn't even a goal of most of theirs. Thing from the heart. They had to sing. Like you said, it was an expression of whether it be love, hurt, or, you know, whatever the pain was, hard work. And, and you know, that's the difference now. And even in my generation, I mean, I wasn't going hungry. I mean, I didn't come from like a, you know, a, a high life lifestyle by any means. It was simple. But at the same time, I wasn't like shining shoes for food. Right. And, and that's what I find today, you know, the difference. And it's no one's fault. I mean, um you know, it's just a different generation. It's just the way we live. It's the world we live in now. I mean, you know, it's, it's the difference between me going to a Spotify with music, you know, everything there waiting for me to like go into the record shop and like, Oh gosh, which record do I buy out of all of these hundreds of records? You know what I mean? Oh, I do know what you mean. I think that um, that is a, a, a perfect segue of conversation talking about, you know, because we I want to talk about struggles and pivots and and being that you and I of, are of the same generations of, of what we witnessed of, old, you know, old world and generations above us and being that voice of seeing things that we saw, you know, you're coming from the South, I'm coming from the Midwest. Um, you know, we were raised during an era of the Kennedy era, the Martin Luther King era, the Vietnam War era, um, where people were, you know, we didn't have technology, things were communicated differently. Um, how we got those messages were heard differently. It was heard over the radio. It was heard, on a, on a television that was not cable, that was local, local communication. Uh, if you were lucky enough to live near a major city that had maybe a channel two or three, and um, it was a very different, you had your local uh, institutions, be it your local schools, your local government, your local um, you know, affiliations of beliefs, um, and that was the way of life for most people. And then the basic choice of what people chose to do. Most women were home 
and being homemakers, not even because they wanted to, but that was the time. That was the tradition. Those were the lane of the land. But we also lived through that transition of fighting for rights, fighting for voting rights, fighting for women's rights, fighting for civil rights, fighting for interracial rights, fighting for all these things that a lot of people in our world, in our backyards, didn't have rights to. And this also affected music, politics, what we saw, what we were exposed to, how we were exposed to. You know, from we were kids raised on variety shows from Hee Haw to Carol Burnett and Andy Griffith to, you know, the incredible amounts of content and music going back to blues and jazz and and gospel coming forward to every mix from Elvis to Frank Sinatra to Barbra Streisand to Beatles to, you know, Supremes to whomever. And today is different. And I think that there are generations of people who just think it was this way. And I think it's really fascinating because you and I have a perspective where we know it wasn't this way. We know it wasn't this simple. You said you made a goal every day to to make sure you interviewed every day. Today, to do that is like sending off an email and then hoping to create a series of connections. I know right or dropping through your technology a private message if you're lucky enough to have that direct kind of and i don't even know that word lucky is the right thing but it might be part of it right because part of the success of all of us is is luck but how crazy is it to to you know call the offices of some of these people who were having huge careers and yet didn't ask oh how big is the radio station it was a 500 watt am station and they just said okay fine you know, this artist is available next Wednesday for 15 minutes. Wow. Well, and that is a really important statement because going back to that billboard directory, as we circle back to that and how you started making those calls and how you didn't let that content intimidate you, you just went, okay, let's, let's tackle this and let's just do this. Literally, that's like being a great salesman. That is literally the quintessential born to be a salesman, whether you realize it or not. No, I've never thought about it like that. That's funny. It is funny, but it's true. It's because we are all salesmen. We just don't realize it. Most of us have such a disdain to that phraseology that we were like, no, I'm not. Like we decline that statement. But the truth is every day we're showing up and selling ourselves. And how are we showing up doing that? And hopefully authentically, because we know the difference as a, as a customer, what that's like to receive and whether we want to buy or not. So you went out selling yourself, getting these interviews, you know, following up by showing up to these interviews. And then what happened? Well, I graduated from high school and and my parents, we talked about me going to a little college down in South Alabama, Troy State. And and I said, OK, I'll go. And then after a couple of weeks, no, I'm I'm I need to start really working my way toward Nashville. And and I did change jobs. I went to another radio station south of my hometown. It was a one hundred thousand watt station, small town. But the signal reached into like the North Florida Beach area. Wow. And, 
yeah, it was a 100,000 watts and it made, it made a difference. It mattered. And so that was a nice little, you know, education there at that radio station. And it was there that I met my musical songwriting mentor. He had had success in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. His name was Billy Henderson. He ended up writing seven songs, but he came to visit, I mean, visit, but actually take care of his ailing parents. Mm. So he thought, okay, to get out of the house a little bit every day, I'll take a job at the radio station. They needed someone. So Hank Williams' cousin told me, she was like, you need to go talk to this, um, you know, manager at this radio station. And, and I'm like, okay, I'm in. And we go and, and then they introduce me to Billy. And then I start, you know, pitching him song ideas, maybe to write on and work on with me. And he did, and he took me under his wing. And then he left, went back to Muscle Shoals. Six months later, he, um, <laughs> he, he came to visit and he said, Hey, at our apartment, we have a three bedroom apartment and there's this new band. Their name is Shenandoah. They just signed with Sony records. And he says, the lead singer got married. We have an empty bedroom. I'm going to road manage them. We're going to be gone most of the time. Would you like to take this room and maybe get a radio gig up here? $69 a month. And I gave my notice and I, you know, got the job. And then they began having a huge career, ended up having several number one. So, I mean, who could have planned that? I mean, yeah. and that is what led me to Nashville. It was like that time, if I'd have even been, you know, roommates with someone else there, I don't think, you know, I, I wouldn't have met the people that I needed to meet that would have connected the dots to Nashville from Muscle Shoals. And it's really mind-blowing when you, you know, I don't do, you know, usually podcasts and interviews, I don't dive this deep into it, but it's kind of like I'm in awe of the story myself. You couldn't make it happen. No, no, no. And, and again, you know, it's really funny and, you know, and I, I don't want to say this ahead of time, but I'm going to just share this. It's funny you just say that because nobody knows when they get on these podcasts with me, what we're going to talk about, including myself. Right. I just know that I love as since I've been a little girl, <laughs> I was a little girl who loved performance, loved art, loved conversation was curious by nature, leaned into any conversation I could hear, not as a nosy little girl, but like, oh, and tell me more. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's so fun. You know, like I would be this little girl laughing at the adult jokes, learning and collecting information, you know, creating art, doing music, performing, but not like off in my room doing that like I was doing ballet or I was doing whatever but my point is to this platform and you saying what you just said about you know I don't normally talk about this or dive so deep this is little Felicia meeting little Bobby <laughs> and being like so tell me more oh that's so funny oh I love that story oh god tell me more and then what happened I love it and that is what I know I connected with you, even though we couldn't dive that deeply while we were filming Wheeler, how I saw, not knowing that this was going to come this way. And so, yeah, so funny that 
that that was shared. And so I agree, we don't expect to have these deep dives, but that's what I love doing with people is having deep dives and giving them the opportunity to express things that maybe they haven't. And so I love that you're having this experience, uh, you know, in while doing this. And my question to you is, so you get to Nashville. Well, I started writing with a guy by the name of Jim Martin. He was attending school at the University of North Alabama down in the mm. Muscle Shoals. But he he wanted to be a songwriter, a successful writer. And we started writing some songs. And he stopped by the apartment one day and he says, well, I'm leaving town. I'm moving to Nashville. And I said, well, why would you want to leave Muscle Shoals? I mean, Muscle Shoals, I don't know if you realize how much crazy musical history is there. Every, Aretha Franklin found her sound there. At okay. Great documentary called Muscle yeah. Soul. Yeah. It included that story. The Rolling Stones, they came there and recorded. Bob Seger cut his biggest hits there. Rod Stewart, Hank Williams Jr. found his sound there. Waylon Jennings worked there. I could go on and on and on. Um, but anyway, it had slowed down by that time. There were still people recording, but not to that you know level. And but I still thought, hey, this is cool. It's still Alabama. You know, it still has a small town vibe. Why would you want to leave here, Jim? You can do it from here. But he left and he he um, started an internship with the legendary country singer Mel Tillis, who also acted in Clint Eastwood films and some Burt Reynolds films. Well, he internship and Mel asked him one day, I'd love to hear, you know, some of your songs. Would you play them for me? And he did. And then Mel wanted to go in the studio and record some of them, you know, for demonstration recordings to pitch to other artists. So I came up here and went to one of the sessions and Mel asked, yeah, would you like a deal too? And I'm like, a deal? <laughs> what kind of deal? I mean, I thought you had to have a lot of hits before I hit before you could even get any kind of deal. But he offered $100 a week and I'm like, okay, so here I go giving another notice. And I go back to Muscle Shoals and give my two weeks notice and I moved to Nashville and he paid me $100 a week. I asked him for 150 and he stuttered, you know, and he was like, well, the, 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 they only paid me 50 when I came here. And I thought, yeah, years ago, but I gladly took it. And I went to work at a grocery store at night, uh, you know, to make another $100 take home a week. And, and that was just one of the most beautiful times in my life. It was so innocent. I was new in town. And a lot of the legends were still here. I yeah. mean, the Grand Ole Opry was kind of like a museum, like a Smithsonian muse, you know, museum because the architects of the Opry were still alive. They may have been 80 years old or 90, but they were still alive and performing. Nashville, um, you know, Johnny Cash was still here. Um, it this was, was the 80s, correct? No, 1990. So 1990s, so 1990s when you landed in Nashville. Yeah. And so that was the talent of, of uh, a chunk of those individuals at that point. But at the same time, I want to go back to the Maltillis opportunity. Think about talent today. How many talent do you know? And maybe this is a different feeling that you've had and experienced. But how many people do you know who are really well established would eagerly say to you, Hey, I'd love to hear what you're doing. Wow. That's good point. <laughs> I don't know. That's a good, I mean, Mel just had that 
wonderful quality. And he continued yeah. to always give people a chance because he came from, you know, a very humble beginning. I mean, he was, he baked bread. He worked in the, you know, the, you know, he picked grapes and he, he dreamed of coming here. So I guess when he could see the hunger, the passion, I guess he was willing to give it a chance. And it was he lose his perspective. Time. I'm sorry. What did you no, say? I Hey, what a magical time. I signed with his company and the building, it was a two-story office building and George Jones and his wife had an office build an office in the building. Uh, the guy who produced Brooks and Dunn, they were just getting started. Alan Jackson was just getting started. He the producer was in the building. We had an old booking agent. His name was Joe Taylor. And he booked so many of these icons from the Opry, like Porter Wagoner and little Jimmy Dickens. So in that building, you would walk in and there could be Mel Tillis in the lobby talking to George Jones, Roger mm -hmm. Miller or Glenn Campbell. They could be there visiting Mel and having a guitar pool. And then you had new artists at the time, like a Faith Hill, who's yeah. producer. He also had her producer had an office in that building. So it was such the 90s were it was what a time to arrive. In what a time to arrive because country music was, I mean, you know better than I, but I know it's as an outsider of that genre uh, that as an observer, you saw that passing the baton and all those transitions and all those greats and then the greats that were going to get recognized and come up at, during that period of time, like uh, almost like a, a, not a resurgence, but a whole new like flame you know, running with that. Does that make sense? Like passing oh, yeah. out of a gun and like reigniting. It exploded. I mean, Garth Brooks exploded, you know. Exactly. Like Alan, Jackson, Travis Tritt, Brooks and Dunn, Faith Hill. I mean, I could go on and on. And then people like Reba, who really, you know. I was going to say Reba, Shania, Shania, all those oh, women, right? I, hey, listen, I remember Shania when she was cutting her first record. And this is before she met Mutt Lane. She did one album pre-Mutt, and it was basically other people's songs. And I remember her producer bringing her, bringing her over to Mel Tillis' company to listen to songs. I can remember that just like it was yesterday, having no clue that she was going to do what she did and really change, change the industry. Change the industry. Because at that point, now we have already had the MTVs established in the early 80s. So now music videos, visual arts married with music, we're now getting their own opportunity to sell their own little mini movies through their performances. So between all these artists getting visually attached to their music versus a soundtrack on vinyl or a tape or cassette or a disc or a soundtrack for somebody else's visual accomplishments, now you're out front. You're being seen. You're not just at a live concert if you're lucky enough to be touring. Total shift of an impact on the music world and in the world of entertainment and music getting married. I mean, really, a whole new, a whole new world. And, well, and go ahead. Sorry. Honey. I, I was just going to say what an exciting time. And, uh, you know, I did, of course, you never realize it at the time. It's happening and it's moving fast. 
But now it's so funny. A lot of younger people that are just coming into town, and it happened with me today at a writing session. He was asking me, what's a man tell me about what it was like in 1995. And I'm not that guy that like lives in the past and I don't wear yeah. that. Around. But it is fun. You know, if people ask, it's kind of cool to share it. And you can see in their eyes, almost like they can't even believe how that would be. You know, experience that. Well, and going back to like either the combination of the that opportunity with Mel Tillis and now you're in this structure that has all these dynamic energies coming through and now you're in this city that won't until years later in, you know, between 2010 and current day become more of a, a Hollywood South because of all the movement that's happened between Nashville and Franklin from of course all over, but you know, what's even happened more currently and then with technology and all the things and now everybody wants to be a country singer. I know it's amazing how actors have, you know, shown up here. I know Dennis Quaid, he was just here and performed on the Grand Ole Opry not long ago. And his manager actually just reached out to me, maybe about writing with him in the weeks ahead. But I know Kevin Costner, you know, he's been here and performed on the Opry. And and our friend Stephen Dorff, after the film Wheeler, he actually has moved here as well and has a home on the outskirts. Well, all those men, it's so funny because I, I, had, I had hoped to work with both Dennis and Kevin. I, I actually, during the pandemic, I did work with Dennis and, and I had been asked to work with Kevin and had declined it at the time because of circumstances. But Stephen, you know how I love and adore. And so many friends have moved down to that area since. Uh, in more recent times, even the last two to four years, including, of course, we know Stephen. And understandably, why? Understandably, because, you know, sense of community, sense of it's a small town, but where big things happen and, you know, lots of expansion. Funny enough, since we were down there, oh, making I, a movie like mind boggling. Oh, it is. You know better than I. Oh, no, it, it's mind blowing every couple of weeks. I mean, I'm like, where am I? I mean, all of the new skyscrapers, I mean, it's crazy. All the, the skyline is totally different. It's almost like it's doubled in size <laughs> since we filmed that movie. But Well, remember the bus tour that you were like, you know, acting through the movie and telling and over here is this and over here well, is yeah, that Ron and all those things? What that bus tour would be like today would be like probably night and day. Oh, yeah. And, and the guy who actually did the tour in the film, Ron Harmon, I actually talked to him last night. And about that often and the changes and now what he's telling people, he, he says a lot, a lot of times he's saying, well, this is where, you know, uh, whatever office used to be, because now there's a tall building and, you know, to take that took the place of maybe this beautiful little home that had a studio or maybe songwriting offices. But, but I wanted to get back to the nineties. One more thing I wanted to talk about when yeah. I worked, when I worked at the grocery store at night, you wouldn't believe the encouragement I received from big stars. Uh, the group Diamond Rio that ended up cutting my song One More Day, a couple of them would come through my checkout line. And um, I didn't really know them. They knew I was a songwriter. And they would ask me, like, hey, how's it going? The great artist Crystal Gale, Patty Loveless. They would come through my line. Have you 
had anyone, you know, like a song lately? And, and just those, you know, few words from these big stars, you wouldn't believe what that did for me. Well, of course. I mean, no, I, I you know, I was coming up yeah. in my career at the same time. So that's why I say to you, like my perspective is somewhat different being in Hollywood versus in Nashville. I have to be honest. It's it's like I was coming from Chicago. So like my my initial experiences were like amazing and very giving and all that. And yeah, definitely opportunities and doors were open because people said, hey, you should meet this girl or hey, this girl you'd want to, you know, align with to do your movie or whatever the case may be. I found it a little different out here. It's not that there's not that. It's just, oh, I didn't know that you did X, Y, and Z. Let me, you know, let's let's talk about that. No, 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 because it's more about that source. And I don't mean that in a negative way, Bobby. I just mean like hearing that experiences and that generosity warms my heart because that's what I think of life as being. That's like where I come from. But that's more of that Midwest South kind of combination right. of that heart versus I think, you know, West Coast LA is more like, it's funny. I used to say after I got here, like a half a dozen years, I was like, oh, the, the Frank Sinatra, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Thinking they're talking about New York. No, that's Los Angeles. <laughs> It's a really lonely town if you don't have connections and you don't have foundation. I you're can't, not in a job. You're out of luck. I, I can't. Not, go ahead. I'm I, sorry. No, I can't imagine what that must be like. I've, I've been so blessed because I have to tell you, even though my heart, you know, the, the center of my heart, the passion was for country music and Nashville. I've always had a love for Hollywood and Los Angeles as well and old school film and and it's been so cool spending time there and i've spent a lot of time the last 20 years there and i've got you know to meet so many you know heroes i remember uh, there've been a couple of occasions where i'd see dick van dyke you know and i met him. some of those legendary people actually you mentioned andy griffith earlier i remember meeting him uh, just a few years before he passed and don knotts and Tony Curtis. And I mean, I know that's totally way another era. Oh, no, but those would be heroes of your childhood that I get making that kind of impression. And I feel I feel the same way. I do feel. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, because I was going to ask you what what are what are your impressions of, you know, your Nashville days versus your days that you do spend here in L.A. And look at you're being sought out for what you can bring value to. So people are gonna treat you in a way that they need you, want you, they wanna speak your words, they wanna sing your words, and they wanna make a hit. That is not to say that they don't love and adore you once they get to know you. But you know what I'm talking about when it comes right. to business, the agenda. There is an agenda, not, not to say that, you know, certain people you've met, but that's the difference about LA versus somebody in your grocery store line who maybe had an agenda, but really wanted to encourage you because who's to say one day 
this young man's not going to be writing my words to my songs that are a hit and I'm going to win, you know, a CMA award or an ACM award or a Grammy award because he wrote my words. Does that make sense? Good point where I guess I was looking at it more like, hey, this town has hundreds of songwriters and there's plenty of great songs, but you're right. You never know. And then the case of Diamond Rio, you know, we ended up having a monster song that crossed over and was the biggest song of their career and nominated for, you know, a Grammy, CMA and ACM. So that is kind of wild to look back on that and think, you know, here I am checking out, you know, the, the drummer's milk and eggs and fast forward several years. And here we are at the Grammys together. I mean, that's, isn't that beautiful? Well, it is beautiful because, you know, and I was going to ask you, it's really funny as I was getting ready for our interview, um, I had printed some stuff out and I ended up un unbeknownst to me printing out old vision boards of mine, literally that I had passed on my walls before we were painting the walls. And these are my kind of vision boards. And these are my kind of vision boards since I was a little girl. And my reason for bringing that up is, you know, as a little boy, when you were visual, you know, visualizing or imagining and music was at the core of all this, you know, did you, did you see this happening for you? Did you, I mean, did you see yourself creating contracts and winning awards and, you know, traveling and connecting? That's a great question. I saw me, at that point, I saw me definitely in Nashville. Mm. And honestly, I never, never dreamed that I would be in a film that, you know, would co-star Chris Christopher's. You know, I'd be sitting at his house playing him the rough cut of the film. I never dreamed that Barbara Streisand and Willie Nelson, and again, I'm not boasting. I'm just saying I never hey, boast that Streisand and Willie would record a song of mine or Blake and Streisand. And, and, uh, and I never really dreamed about awards. I just mm -hmm. wanted to be able to do what I loved. And, and, you know, I've been, I just can't even believe it. Some sometimes, I mean, I've been able to sing a duet with Loretta Lynn I've become friends with some of my heroes. And you know what? It's so beautiful when your heroes actually do become just real people. And you realize very quickly that they're just, you know, they're human. And when they're actually very kind and become a friend, that's just a really beautiful gift. It really is. And I, I'm curious. So when you started writing, did did you imagine yourself becoming a writer? Like, did you know that writing was a strength of yours? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How did you, I when did you know was, that? When did you start I, writing that you went, oh, I want, this has got to be a part of who I am? When I was in high school, I became a member of the FFA String Band, FFA Future Farmers of America. I was never the former type. However, I respected so much but they had the FFA band where you could play country rock music. And I became a member. And then I started writing some songs that maybe we could record or not record, but actually perform. And then I got to thinking, well, man, the group Alabama could cut this or maybe Hank Williams Jr. Or, 
or Merle Haggard. You know, that started entering my mind. And that's when that the wheels really started turning. It's funny. I never wanted to be that superstar. I didn't even want to be a star. I just wanted to write songs. And uh, I didn't want to be that guy that had to worry when he went out to eat lunch, you know, if he, yeah. he, he I needed that piece. But, you know, fast forward a few years later, and then I ended up recording. I, I've never chased the radio, but that's, it's, you know, it's such a different time now. You don't have to be on the radio with the internet. You can develop a fan base and through some TV shows on CMT and films like Wheeler and being a writer of some big hits, I've been able to develop that fan base and I get to tour and do shows as many as I want to every year. And that has been the just one of the biggest gifts for me to get out of the writer room at this point and take a mm -hmm. break and mm -hmm. get out, sing the songs and look the people in the eye and see their reaction and getting to talk to them. I'm jumping around a lot. I hope that's okay. No, my God, it's brilliant. No, because I think what is, is so beautiful in the segue is you are describing a really cool organic creation of your brand and your brand that you didn't even know was going to evolve into this brand, but has so elegantly and gracefully. And again, what I so admired you, like as the onion got peeled back of just little glimpses of nuggets that would get dropped while we were making the movie, I'd be like, who is this person? I've got to get to know this person because I'm just like genuinely interested in how you tick. And I love that you get to live your life on this path that fills your soul while you're filling so many other souls and that you get to do it in the most genuine heartfelt way, but that monetizes a success while you get to also help others success. And yet you're doing it from such a heartfelt core rooted place of who you authentically are that it's not a put on it's just an is and it's so beautiful and so um and look i i don't i don't say this with like and every day is a perfect rainbow i say this with like wow you're living your truth and how inspirational that is and what a great great inspiration and empowerment statement to share with others that if you want to do that you can too and here's how i did it and believe me it has a, just like with any story there's been a lot of heartaches i mean just the past couple of years i've lost so many friends and uh, you know from you know someone passing away in a car accident to you know my mother passing away i've lost two uncles and I mean, and then so many friends, so many people in the business and there's always some hard times and, but you know, it's kind of a cliche, but it does. I mean, in my case, it has made me stronger and it's made me appreciate every day more. And, yeah. um, but I have, I mean, getting back to some of the blessings, someone sent me a video today of um, three years ago at the country music hall of fame, I was doing sound check for a show and James Taylor's brother Livingston just starts running down the stairs. I didn't even know he was in the building and grabs a guitar and starts playing and singing my song one more day with me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm such a James Taylor and I love Livingston and, and just moments like that. Those are the awards for me. Those are the true awards 
getting to, you know, just experience things that I couldn't even dream, <laughs> dream up, you know. Well, what I love about also your art form and the power of the word and the power of music is how it does connect so many people and how it really goes to the core of emotions and experience and how that continues to, you know, that's an ever, never ending art that can be shared, just like you were expressing with Livingston, like just going through this, who's, who, you, you couldn't have seen that happening, but there it was and it got manifested and you don't know how, but how goes back to you sitting down and scribbling on a piece of paper or to a computer or whatever and however you do it. And I want to hear about the day in the life of Bobby, uh, how you do that. <laughs> I still do this. Oh, yes. You know, these, I, this, this, this is fresh. <laughs> there you go. No, it's, there no, you go. I've got notebooks. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a scribbler too. I mean, I'll, I'll use my notes on my phone, but you're right. It doesn't crash. And so, you know, the fact that you have this art form that gets to land in so many people's laps, given the choice and the rec and recognizing the brilliance of, you know, what's been created and the desire to want to, you know, speak those words and sing those lyrics and, you know, is really powerful. That's got to like, you know, be an, be an emotion that maybe you can't even put into words. I don't really think I can. I mean, you know, when I got into this and started writing songs, you know, you never dream of songs that may be used for memorial services. But again, my song, One More Day, I can't tell you how many times I've sang that at memorial services. I was just asked to sing it uh, yesterday for a memorial coming in June, a dear friend that I lost and worked with in the business. But but I receive emails every week from people that have used that song in memorial services. And, uh, and that's the kind of thing you'd, you'd never think about that when you're writing a song, but yeah. that's when well, it's bigger than, you know, than me. <laughs> well, and I think that's the beautiful thing about your form of art, because, you know, as somebody who does what I do, my, my art, for all intents and purposes is disposable unless it's been documented. Mm. Granted, I am in a I am in a field that it does get documented, but it's a you know it's it's no different than the word. It has to be recreated all the time. And then it's who appreciates it and who wants to live in it and whatever. So it's no different than, you know, who wants to take that song and who wants to record it and who wants to perform it and all those things. But it's different. I think it's different. Um, and not in a bad way. It's just a different art form. And I just think that um, when you think about the power, like I think words are so powerful. I think our messages are so powerful. I think the reason why music plays such an important role in people's lives is because of how it attaches you to experiences, memories, moments, time, history, feelings. Like, it's just, you know, it goes on. 
I know as a little girl. So I wanted to become a director and a DP. I don't know if you knew this about me. So no. as a little, yeah, so as a little girl and I played the cello and the piano all the way into my early 20s, not the piano, the cello, but I started with the piano. My point to this is I didn't realize this, but when I was in high school, I used to, at the end of the year, boarding school, put together all these images and lay it to music, like a soundtrack. And then I, it would get presented at the end of the year to school. And I also did this at summer camp. So I was already making my own little movies and telling stories. And what's so funny about music for me is all the music I love, I was not the kid who was running around going, you know, so-and-so sang this and created this this year and this is on this album. But I could put together music to dance, to an image, to whatever, and, and capture that emotion. And it was really organic the way. So the fact that you have powerfully, like throughout so many decades now, which is three decades, I take it, at least, right? Three? Well, let's see. I started going on oh. four. <laughs> yeah, I think we're going on four now. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe. It. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right? That caught me hard. <laughs> but you know now, what I'm saying? Wow. It's powerful, though, Bobby. That's such a compliment to you. It's a compliment to you because, first off, you know, you said it early on, you didn't get into it to win awards, you didn't get into it for your notoriety to be the person, who, you know, you want to be able to sit down and have your lunch and do, you know, and live your life the way you wanted to live it. And it's interesting because, you know, most people aren't that, that, that way. Most people aren't as humble in their approach now, there is a lot of people behind the scenes who are very successful. And technically being a writer is behind the scenes, even though if, if we don't have a word on paper, we don't have a song, we don't have a script, we don't have a book, we don't have, like it starts with the word. Really does. It really does. The slogan here for the National Songwriters Association, it all begins with a song. None yeah. of this, this town, the music city wouldn't exist without it, you know, yeah. so. Yep. I love Bobby Toberlin so much from the moment I met him and got to create with him. This is one of the most heartfelt human beings I have ever met. His soul is so pure and so full of love and his talent is endless. So I look forward to you joining me next week for part two of our conversation when we sit down and continue to talk about Bobby's love for music, the people that have influenced him, and his takeaways on from little Bobby to where he is now. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I look forward to you joining me next week. Tell all your friends, subscribe, sit down, listen, enjoy. Let's have a connection. Let's have a conversation. And let's talk about everything from soup to nuts. Because for God's sake, what else are we doing here? So let's enjoy. Listen to some good music. Put up your feet and have a good listen. Have a good coffee, have a good beer, and have fun. Much love. Bye for now. Oh.